This is episode 532 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. We've spent some time discovering incredible truths about the kingdom of God and its dual dimensions. For the kingdom manifests itself today in our daily lives and also tomorrow when Christ the King comes and ushers in the fulfillment of his kingdom. In other words, the kingdom is manifest in several realms, and the gospels speak of entering the kingdom of God both today and tomorrow. Think about it. Since there are two comings of Christ, there are also two manifestations of his kingdom that we can experience. One we can experience in part while on earth, and the other we experience in power and glory when Christ returns. But the good news is that now, while we're living on earth, we can experience a taste or a foreshadowing, kind of a hint of what his kingdom will be like. And we can know what blessings he has in store for those who obey him and submit to his rule and reign voluntarily out of love. much like the disciples did on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's right. Join us as we discover how to experience the kingdom of God today by looking at what happened with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and especially the words he spoke right before that event, as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I have, um, I've been going through this for quite a while, and I want to just take a moment before we move any further and remind you the purpose of this. Uh, we are living in very troubling times. We're living in economically troubling times. We have inflation. It's uh, heading in wild directions. If you look at economic forecast, and if you um, listen to what some of the major hedge fund managers and presidents of uh, various large investment companies are saying, they're saying pretty much that a recession bordering on a serious recession worse than 2007 and 2008 is assured. There's nothing we can do about that because inflation is ramped up as much as it is. The feds are having to um, um, raise interest rates at draconian rates. It was three quarters of a percent just this last time, which is unheard of. Anyway, it's, it's rough times. If you look at the landscape politically, it uh, is shocking what the media is reporting on and what the media is not reporting on. They're reporting on the fact that uh, you and me, as Christians and conservatives, are um, deemed uh, potential domestic terrorists. And so therefore, they're going to have some sort of disinformation board to monitor the things that are said on social media. That's been kind of set aside for political reasons for a while. They are not reporting on the fact that uh, Hillary Clinton uh, approved and paid for the whole Russian Trump hoax. None of the mainstream media other than Fox is actually reporting on that. We're living in really troubling times. We don't have, we don't have formula for our babies, and so we have to ask other countries to fly their formula over here. We're having a gas shortage, and then we shut down pipelines and drilling in our country. I mean, it's almost like it's designed to sink this ship, and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Um, well, we can vote them out unless the election's stolen, unless something else happens like that. We have no idea what to do. 
What we're going through is nothing compared to what they went through in the book of Acts. Nothing. As a matter of fact, what they went through was infinitely more difficult than what we're going through right now. What they went through is pretty much what the Jews went through in Nazi Germany. And the question that I've always had is, I'm not a Jew, but my neighbor's a Jew, or my business partner's a Jew, and the entire government decides that we're going to malign my friends. Why did I stay silent? Why did I allow it to happen? And pretty much the same thing that happened then is happening today. Um, again, I'm really shocked at some of the things that I, uh, that I read. So I go into the book of Acts and I say, Lord, these people thrived under persecution. These people were absolutely obliterated. They lost their homes and their jobs and they had to bond together as some sort of like corporate commune and they supported each other. And, and every day they were threatened with losing their livelihood or being flogged or whipped or stoned like uh, Stephen was or arrested. And nevertheless, their witness was stronger. They, they got even bolder. How is that possible? What did they know that we don't know? Or what do we value that they don't? The more I began studying this, I realized that one of the primary truths they held on to was the fact that they belonged to the kingdom of God. Jesus preached about it. If anything, over the last month, I hope you realize that Jesus began his ministry. The bulk of everything that came out of his mouth focused on the kingdom of God like he began preaching. At the end of his ministry, he preached on the kingdom of God. When he died and was resurrected during those 40 days, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 tells us he preached about things pertaining to the kingdom of God and then commissioned the early church to proclaim that kingdom as a witness and a testimony to the king everywhere that they went. And so therefore they realized if, if I have a king of the universe, the king of kings and the Lord of lords as my sovereign, then why in the world am I going to fear Herod or Caesar or anybody else? And it led to this explosive growth of Christianity. Same thing happened in communist China. Same thing has happened elsewhere in the world. But for us today as Americans, we have a hard time conceiving of what a kingdom is all about. I mean, be real honest. When you think of a kingdom, what do you think about? You think of a castle? You know, it's a medieval castle, and the guy's kind of hanging around, and then the funny guys with the swords and the hats kind of guarding it. And, you know, and, and we're outside of the castle. The king's in the ca castle. We're outside the castle. But we want to be really careful not to offend the king because the king will send his men out and take our stuff from us to enrich himself. And then we have the whole Robin Hood stories and all that kind of stuff where you know, the king is bad. And, I mean, that's, that's how we view it. The last king we ever had as a nation was the king of England. And we said, we're not going to put up with that anymore. So we decided to have a revolution. And the revolution was not on moral, ethical, life and death issues. Our revolution was pretty much on economic issues. No taxation without representation. We're not going to, you know, there's too much taxes that are coming from us. And so you had the Boston Tea Party. And, and then this armed rebellion that took place. I mean, we as a people want nothing to, to do with the king. And so as believers in Christ, as the church, when we start talking about a king, it's almost this schizophrenic view of a king, like if you had an abusive father, 
and now God is your father. You have this strange view of God the Father because you superimpose upon him your earthly father's traits. Sometimes we superimpose on the king things that are not to be attributed to God. The early church understood that. And the early church worshipped and served and felt confident and emboldened in the fact that they had a king. A king. Well, as we begin looking at the kingdom of God, one of the things that you have to just blank your mind of is there's not a castle, there's not a territory. It's not like, you know, this is the king of England, and as long as I'm in England, I'm under the authority of this king. But if I go to France, then I'm under the king of France, who's a co-equal king with the king of England, and they fight it out. But if I go into an area that has no king, into the wilderness, then I'm really not under the authority of the king because a king is territorial, or a king has authority only during uh, a, a certain time period, or under a certain domain, or for a certain people. None of that is true. Don't think about the kingdom of God as like some sort of castle, territorial, physical kingdom. It will be at one point in time, but it's not now. The kingdom of God is simply his rule and reign. And if you want to be real honest about it, that um, when we talk about the kingdom of God, it is God's rule and reign. That's all it means. God's rule and reign over his creation. And where he rules and where he reigns is the kingdom. Jesus and John the Baptist come preaching. Repent. Ooh, repent. Well, what do you mean? The way that you're going against God's rule and reign, repent of that right now. And repent. Why? Because the God's rule and reign is coming. Repent of you going your way and embrace his rule and reign, his sovereignty in your life, and everything will be wonderful. All of a sudden, uh, Jesus is confronted by a bunch of Pharisees and scribes, and they, he asks them a question, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And one particular man answers properly. And Jesus looks at him and says, you are not far, do you remember, from the kingdom of God. What does that mean? You are not far from acknowledging, from embracing for surrendering yourself to the rule and reign of God. Again, it's not a physical kingdom, but it will be. It will be. That's the most exciting part of the study of prophecy and eschatology, is all this pollution, all this corruption, all this degrading of God's original grand plan will someday by our, by our Lord be put to an end. And all of a sudden, when we'll talk about this later on, you know, the rapture of the church will take place and he will redeem his people. And then the wrath of God will be poured out. Satan will and his little minions will try to fight against God. Look how look, ridiculous is that? God will vanquish them. They'll be thrown into the pit for a thousand years. Then God will set up a physical kingdom on this earth where he will reign for a thousand years, pretty much showing the people what it could be like could have been like in the Garden of Eden had you, Adam and Eve continued to acknowledge God's rule and reign and not go their own way. Well, why doesn't God just wipe everybody out now? Why doesn't God just take Satan and, and 
tie him up and put him in a box now? Why does God allow sin to happen? Why does God allow cancer to take place or babies to be aborted or, or child porn or, or divorce or betrayal? Why does God allow that now? Because you've been blessed with free will. God could create every one of us to be like robots. Yes, Lord, I love you, Lord. Yes, Lord, I love you, Lord. And I need a little more praise here. So, uh, so uh, Tim, I know you don't want to praise me, but you're going to praise me, so I'm going to give you this force thing like Star Wars. Yes, Lord. There's no glory in that. So what God does is he gave us free will and a choice to acknowledge his kingdom or not acknowledge his kingdom, to go our own way and commit sin and suffer the consequences of that, or to surrender our lives to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and experience this fullness of the Holy Spirit, experience the higher Christian life we've been talking about, experience life in his kingdom, and receive the promised blessings that come from that. It's a choice, and he gets praise when we freely choose to acknowledge and surrender ourselves to him. Most of us are kind of stuck in the middle, which is the Laodicean church age. Uh, We're not hot and we're not cold. We're not absolutely abject surrender to the lordship of of Jesus Christ and, and embrace his rule and reign over our life and are thankful for how our God, our sovereign God, takes care of everything. Then again, we're not spitting in his face. We're not saying he's not really God. We're not over here being a blasphemer. We're just kind of in the middle where sometimes we acknowledge it and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we walk in the light and sometimes we don't. Sometimes when we need him, we rub our genie bottle and ask him to come out and bless us. But the other times we want to call our own shots, we put him in a box, put him under the, under the cupboard, and don't bring him out again until it suits us. And then we wonder why our spiritual lives are up and down and in and out rather than on this trajectory of Christ-likeness as we've talked about with the higher Christian life. There are two aspects to God's kingdom. There's a present aspect and there's a future aspect. It's like two manifestations of his kingdom. And we will understand what his kingdom is totally like when the king comes, but now we can understand what the kingdom is like as pilgrims and sojourners and citizens of his kingdom, yet living in a foreign land, but still under the protection and provision of our sovereign king. The kingdom of God is simply the acknowledgement and the surrendering of your life to him. Experiencing the kingdom of God is the same thing as how you embrace the higher Christian life, that I want to surrender areas of my life to him that I'm not. Again, using the acronym or the number thing we've always talked about, if at one time you were a 10, highest you've ever been spiritually, and you're less now, you're a six, then you could almost say that, you know, six 60% of the closest you've ever been to the Lord because our tens are individuals. Your 10 and my 10 is not a finite 10. Then I'm I'm acknowledging him in those areas, but the 4%, the 40%, I'm going my own way. And so what we need to do is recapture lost ground by surrendering more of our life to him. That's how we embrace a deeper intimacy with him. That's how we understand practical sanctification. That's how we learn to embrace the kingdom of God. We follow him 
and there are natural blessings that come with obedience. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, the New Testament is explicitly clear that uh, there's no way the kingdom of God will ever be perfectly realized and manifested in this world. And the reason is because of sin. Because of your sin, because of my sin, because of the power of Satan that's still floating around, that's not going to happen. The best that we can do is, is experience a taste of what it's like, experience a, um, like a foreshadowing of what it's going to be like when God is all in all. Now, I asked you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is known as the love chapter. And I want to focus on just one verse here. Pretty amazing. It's, it's a picture of our life now, and it's a picture of what our life will be then. Now and then. You know, verse number eight, love never fails. When prophecies and tongues, those things will fail. We, uh, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but verse 10, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. The perfect, of course, that we're talking about here is Christ. And then there's this picture of then and now. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. I want you to look at this. Again, going back on how we've used some tools to be able to, to help study a Bible passage, when we look at this, we see that there's two groups of words here. There's now and then. Now, there's a contrast. In the first part of this passage, in the first sentence, there's a contrast between what I'm experiencing right now and something that will take place in the future. Look at that. Happens again in the second sentence. Now I know in part, then I, something else will happen. So there's something I'm experiencing now, and there's something I will experience in the future, and the verse is talking about a contrast between those two. Okay. Next thing I look at is I find this word mentioned three times. No, no, and known. I need to know which one it is. Is this Edo? Is this Gnosko? Is it Epigonosko? I mean, what, what does it mean here? And when you find a verse that has the same word mentioned three times, it's like, all right, Holy Spirit, is there something deeper you want to show me? Is there something a little more involved here? And so you take just a few minutes and you log on to Blue Letter Bible, you pull it up on your phone, whatever you need to do, grab a strong concordance. And I just want to look up what those words mean because I'm thinking by seeing that in here, there may be a nugget to uh, uncover which may open up this entire passage and shed some light on his kingdom and what I'm studying right now. So I begin to ask questions and look at some of these words as I go through it. Watch what this says. But now, right now, now, at this present time, today, right now on the 22nd of May, 2022, at 10.29 in the morning, that's why I needed the clock, right now, something's happening. Right now, I see what? It doesn't tell me what I see but it tells me how I see. I see in a mirror 
dimly. Right now, my perception, and again, the context here is talking about the perfect coming, Christ coming, my, my perception of the gifts of the Spirit of love, my perception of Christ, my perception of his kingdom, my perception of everything. I'm seeing in a mirror. I'm not seeing it face to face. I'm seeing a reflection of it. I'm not seeing it in its totality in three dimensions. I'm seeing it in only two dimensions. It's better than not seeing it at all, but I'm seeing it in a mirror, but I'm not seeing it clearly. I'm seeing it dimly. Well, when I think of dimly, I think, what is a dirty mirror? Does it have solar film on it that I can't really get a good picture of it? But if you look up the word, it means something different. It means dark. I understand that interpretation. But it also means that which is difficult or impossible to understand, like a riddle. Oh, oh. So when I'm looking at Christ and I'm looking at his kingdom, and I'm looking at future events, and I'm looking at everything pertaining to him. I see it as a reflection. I, I see a picture of it, but I see it in ways that are somehow hard to understand. I see it kind of dark. It's not crystal clear. It's, it's an image, but it's not the real thing in totality. Jesus is not standing in front of me. Instead, I'm seeing a picture of Christ dimly. Will it always be like that? Will I always just have to hope and guess and pray and, and try to put the pieces together to figure it out? Or will there be a time when I'll know everything? Oh, yeah. But then, at some point in time, when he appears in the future, in this second dimension of his kingdom, we have the kingdom now for today and the kingdom for tomorrow, how will I see him then? Then face to face. It's no longer reflection. It's no longer looking in a mirror dimly. I can't look around him. I can't look behind him. But now all of a sudden, this, this reflection thing is taken away, and I'm seeing him face to face. That word means countenance. It means his personal presence. It literally means I will see him and be before his eyes, or I will behold him with my eyes. Okay, okay, now things are a little confusing. Now things are a little dark. I see, but I don't see clearly. But at some point in time in the future, when he comes, I will see him just like I'm seeing you. I'll see him face to face. I'll see everything. And then the second contrast now, again, at this present time today, now I just don't see, but now I know. Oh, this is gnosko. I recognize gnosko. I kind of know what gnosko means. It means to know intimately. It means to know by experience. It means to choose. Okay, I know. I don't know it. It's not like I know it cognitively, like, like just knowledge, book knowledge, but I actually know it intimately like experiential knowledge. Okay. I know what doesn't say, but what it does tell me is how I know. I don't know fully. No, I don't. I'm looking at a mirror dimly. I know in part. I have an allotment or a share or a portion that he has chosen to reveal to me. And to you, it's not the totality of who he is, not, not the, the wonder of his kingdom, but I know in part, 
And that's what that word part means. But then when he comes, when I'll see him face to face, when he appears, I shall know. Oh, this is a different word. This isn't gnosko. This is epigonosko. Oh, I haven't seen that one before. I kind of know gnosko. So this is epigonosko. So there's a little part put to the front of that word. I wonder what that word means. It means something different than to know experientially. Then I shall know epigonosko just as I also am epigonosko. Okay, um, what, what is this saying here? I know gnosko in part now, but when he comes and I see him face to face, no longer dimly in a mirror, when if you're talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God I'm experiencing now, which is like looking in a mirror dimly, I see Christ, and there's blessings that come with that, but nevertheless, I don't have the totality of that. But then when he, I see him face to face, then I know, I know him epigonosco, just as I am also known, implied by him. So what do these words mean? Okay. Again, you get out your Bible dictionary, the one that I bought all of you, uh, that you have at home, and you look at 109.7, and I want to see what Gnosko says, and this is what it says in your book. It says, to perceive, to understand, to discern. I got that. But it also means that I'm perceiving and understanding and discerning by experience. So Chris is going to school to study accounting, true? Okay, so what he's doing is he's looking at the book, and let's say they're doing cost accounting. I hated cost accounting. That's why I keep bringing that up. It was a nightmare. They, they do cost accounting, and he's got a book, and he's done some papers, and he's learning cost accounting, book learning. Well, what he's doing is he's learning at Edo. That's the Greek word. But when Chris gets a job for some manufacturing company, and they sit him down with some general ledgers, and they make him do cost accounting, now he's learned cost accounting and knows cost accounting, gnosko. I know it because I'm doing it. I know it because I experienced it. I have firsthand knowledge, not book knowledge, but firsthand knowledge of what I'm doing right now. So gnosko means to perceive and understand and learn by experience, but it also means to know intimately. This is the same word that when it says, for example, in the book of Matthew, that uh, Joseph took Mary as his wife and did not know her until after Jesus was born. We know what know means, and it doesn't mean to, to just think about her and know her name. It means to know her in an intimate, experiential sort of level. I'm, I, I'm not doing that, says Joseph, but that's what the word means. It means to have acquired knowledge of something or someone with the idea of goodwill. It means to know and approve and love or to care for. Jesus says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know my voice. I know my sheep, and I, <clears throat> I'm the good shepherd. That's this word. Okay, so I know what it says, I know in part. But what does epigonosco mean? Oh, that's words used twice. It means to know fully doesn't say that you have to know by experience, although the gnosko part in there would indicate that, but I know not only by experience, but I know everything there is to know. 
I know fully. I know how to either gain or receive complete knowledge of someone or something. There's nothing in this person, nothing about this subject I don't know. I can't learn anything new because I know all there is to know. My knowledge is complete. So we're looking at the kingdom of God. We're looking at what happens when Christ comes. We're looking at what our life like is now, seeing him, and what our life will be like when he comes and returns in this future aspect of his kingdom. It says, right now we see in a mirror dimly, best I can, but then face to face. I, uh, I can read the gospel accounts in Matthew, or Mark, or Luke, or John, but I can't ask Jesus questions about him face to face that I'll be able to do at some point in time. I can read the accounts of Acts and what Paul did, yet I'd love to sit down with Paul and ask him, what were you thinking? when this happened. Because I can see in a mirror, limited, but at some point in time, I'll see him face to face. Now I know by experience, according to my allotment, my portion, what God has allowed me to have. I know by experience in part, but then I shall know completely, absolutely completely. There's nothing I won't know, just as I am known by him completely. Now, at the present time, I know gnosko. I can perceive and discern. I can know by experience in part. But then when he comes, I shall know in a completed sense. I shall know everything. There'll be no questions that I ha have. I'll understand the totality of his kingdom. I'll understand what it means to have God as a king. I'll understand what it means when my king is actually my father, and he's elevated me as an adopted son to the point of an heir, a joint heir with his natural-born son, Jesus. I really had no idea that you loved me that much. If I understood that when I was living on earth, when I'm looking at this dimly through doubt, life would have been totally different if I would have believed and embraced your kingdom then. Exactly. But when the day comes, everything changes. I shall know completely just like I am known by him. So what does this mean? It means with this two aspects of his kingdom, the best we can hope for right now is to see things incompletely, to see things dimly. Don't ever assume that you know everything there is to know about God or even one passage in Scripture, because there's not. There's a, um, just a depth. I think a man, honestly, could spend his entire life on just the Beatitudes, or maybe one Beatitude, and could never exhaust the, the wealth of what God wants to reveal to us through his word. How many times have you read a passage for the 17th time, and God spoke to you about something or showed you something in it that you had never seen before? To me, it happens all the time. That's how God moves. But when he comes in this ushering into the full kingdom, we will know in full in the same way we are known by him with nothing to hide or what he says we will be known face to face. So when does this happen? I'm kind of tired of waiting. Uh, our world is collapsing. Things are getting tougher. Um, people's anger towards each other is getting more intense. I don't know if you've noticed this, 
but uh, it really picked up during the Trump administration, although it was there during the Biden administration, that you no longer have to produce facts to slander someone. That all you have to do is make an allegation. So we're going to make an allegation and other people start believing it. You know, I remember it started with uh, Clarence Thomas when he was, many of you may not remember that, when he was uh, up before the Judiciary Committee to be a Supreme Court judge. He was nominated uh, by the Republican uh, administration at that time. The Democrats didn't want him there. The one that was managing that meeting was, do you remember? Joe Biden. And so this woman, Anita Hill, nobody ever heard of her? She had some allegations. The allegations was about Clarence Thomas that he sexually assaulted her. Uh, harassed her. Really? What did he do? Well, he stood next to her when she was working at her desk and made some off-handed remark about uh, a hair that was on her Diet Coke can. Really? I had no idea. Nobody can back that up. Nobody can prove that. You didn't tell anybody else about it. You're just now bringing it up now, just like that person did during the Kavanaugh trial. You're now making a big deal about it, so we're going to give you national publicity, put you right up against the committee. We're not going to ask you for any facts. We're going to believe you because we hate him. Clarence Thomas handled that in the most incredible way. We're sitting there watching it on television as she's giving her testimony. She's a law professor, a rather well-known person, um, kind of like a Democratic operative at that time. And, and so they brought Clarence Thomas back out, and Joe Biden said, what do you have to say about those allegations? And Clarence Thomas says, I didn't watch him. What? I didn't watch him. I'm not even going to dignify my time to spend time watching something like that and have to defend it in front of you. And then he gave that classic words, this is nothing more than a high-tech lynching. Does anybody remember that? And of course, he was elected, and the people hate him because of that. And we had the same thing going on with Kavanaugh about all this. Then we heard this stuff. And so in our culture today, you don't have to produce any evidence. You just make allegations. And because on social media, people just jump on and they report it, it just it becomes crazy. I'm tired of this. You tired of this? God, when is it going to happen? When are you going to set everything straight? When are you going to become king and rule like a king and will, of course, be your children? When is that going to happen? Well, it's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen until I return. The good news is this could be really soon. This could really be happening much quicker than we think. But it's not going to happen until he returns because there are two comings of Christ. Theologically, they talk about two advents of Christ. The first time he came, he came as a, a lamb. He came as a suffering servant. He came as a baby in a manger in a destitute area of the world to two very poor young people. But when he comes again, he's going to come in power and might and majesty, and he's going to defeat the usurper, and he's going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. It's going to be a marvelous time. And, and even at the end of that, he allows free will. And if some people will still rebel against him at the end of the thousand years, I mean, it's ridiculous when you think about it. There are two comings of Christ, but we can experience one of those manifestations now. And one of those manifestations we won't experience until it happens. And so our goal as believers is trying to understand what it means to live in his kingdom and experience his kingdom while we're living here on earth. 
different name, uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit to a point that, that God that we've had so much spiritual fruit that is just hanging off of us that, that God wants to do incredible things, John 15, or, or, excuse me, or a higher Christian life or a deeper commitment to him, however you want to call it, embracing him for who he is. All we can kind of gather now is just a hint and a taste of what that is like because when it comes, it's going to be bigger than we can even imagine. Now unto him, even right now, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we even ask or think. We can't even imagine what God is willing to do for us right now because we're too busy kind of doing it ourselves. So what blessings does he give us if we acknowledge him and place ourselves in submission to him and ask him to rule in our lives? Well, one here says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's assumed that if we love him, we will. If the king makes rules, if we love the king and respect the king and honor the king and wants the king to be happy with us, we'll follow what the king says. So um, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And our question is, well, if we do, what are you going to give us? You know, we're living in kind of a narcissistic society, so what blessings will you bring our way? What, uh, what will you do in response to our love? It's kind of a business deal. If I give you my love and obey your commands, what will you do for me? What, what, how will you make it worth my while to sacrifice my free will and my carnal nature to obey you? And as we have learned in Bible study, the answer to these questions usually comes when you continue reading. And so that's what we're going to do. John 14. If you love me, keep my commandments. Okay. And if I do what? Oh, it's really simple. I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper. Oh, this is that Holy Spirit passage. Yeah. But look at it. That, this, that he, the Father, could be. He, the Holy Spirit, could be, he will live and abide and rest and make his home with you forever. Oh, so even though my king is out there and Jesus says that, that uh, this world is not his kingdom right now, but it will be someday, and we're pilgrims and sojourners and, and we're like ambassadors of the king in this dark and dying world, nevertheless, I don't have to go to where the king is or shoot him an email for instructions because the king himself is going to live, rest, abide, and make his home in me. Wow. So you're not alone. No. You're, you're not an orphan. You're not an abandoned child. No. I'm a child of the king, and the king is always with me. So who is this other helper? What's the spirit of truth? Can everybody see him? No. The world cannot receive him. It is impossible for the lost people of the world to even experience what you're experiencing, no matter how hard they try, because he only comes by the sovereign, graceful act of God based on repentance and surrender to him. The world cannot receive it because it neither sees him, acknowledges him, or gnosko him or knows him by experience but you're never alone why because you know him 
how do I know him? How do I know God? What affirmation can you give me that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I know God? It's really simple. Because right now in this part of the kingdom, he dwells with you. This is what he's saying to them at that time. But in the future, Acts chapter 2, our past, their future, he will be in you. Oh, so Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm standing here. I am dwelling with you. But the time will come in the future where I will no longer be standing here dwelling with you. Instead, I will go to the Father, but I will send you another just like me who will be in you, in you, forever. I will not leave you as orphans, says Jesus. I will come to you. For us, that's past tense. The Holy Spirit already lives in us. The future deposit of our inheritance in him is already ours. The king, the king lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So as we go around and function in this world, we should never fear what the world can throw at us because it's not like the king is out there and I'm waiting for him to come. The king is right here experiencing it with us. So wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever trials and tribulation that comes our way, we preached about this three weeks ago, Romans 8.28 says, the king who lives in us says that it all works to our good. And the worst that can happen is we die and go to live with him forever. That's the winner. That's the winner. So... While we're living on earth, most we can experience is like a, like a foreshadowing of what it's like to live in his kingdom, a just small picture of what that's like. And I want to close with this. I want to give you a foreshadowing, uh, or just I want to go through this quickly, and we're gonna, I'm going to talk more about this and unpack this more this week. But Jesus gave not all his disciples, but a certain group of disciples a foreshadowing picture of what he is like as king and sovereign and Lord. And we call it the Mount of Transfiguration. Oh, I remember that story. Um, yeah, I think he took a couple of disciples, went up in the mountain, and there's two guys talking to him, and it got really bright, and you know, Peter wanted to make lean-tos, and you know, it's kind of a weird situation. I, I remember that. But it's... Uh, Phenomenal. This event on the mountain is recorded in Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9, and 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. But what I want you to see is what happens prior to the Mount of Transfiguration experience. It's really shocking. There's a particular statement Jesus makes in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that precedes the Mount of Transfiguration. And I wonder if it's Related. I wonder if they're connected. I, I wonder what he's trying to tell us today about his kingdom. Let's look at the first one. The, the, uh, if you looked in your Bibles, you would find that the Mount of Transfiguration experience is in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. The last couple of those verses deal with, you know, uh, John the Baptist and stuff of that nature. We're not going to look at those, but, but this is how it is in Matthew. But the last verse 
in Matthew 16, Jesus says something kind of amazing. Remember, we're the ones that put chapter divisions in the Bible. We're the ones that put uh, verses in the Bible. So this was all one long narrative. Just kind of one led into another. And so before the Mount of Transfiguration, here's what Jesus said. He says, surely I say to you, talking to his disciples, there are some of you, not all of you, but some of you, we know who those are, Peter, James, and John, some of you standing here. Now, this is a place proximity verse. Jesus isn't talking about something that's going to happen in the future. Some of you who are with me right now in this physical location shall not taste death until what? Until they see with their own eyes the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word coming there, it's a great word. It means to arrive, to be present, to come, to appear. Uh, okay, Lord, we're misinterpreting all this because we think your kingdom is when you're going to defeat Rome and you're going to exalt the Jews and you're going to set us up on the 12 tribes and we're going to be really rich. We think the kingdom is the millennial reign. No. No, there's, there's a, that's the future kingdom. I'm telling you right here that some of you will not taste death until you see me, the Son of Man, come into his kingdom, a manifestation of his kingdom, a taste of what his kingdom is like. And then, next chapter, verse 1, the transfiguration. Mark, here's the transfiguration passages. You can look it up in your Bible. But the first verse of Mark chapter 9, verse 1, says this, right before the transfiguration. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present. Present. What does that mean? It means appear. But not only appear, but with power. Mark asks, adds the power aspect of his kingdom, the dudamas, explosive, miracle-working power, and then the transfiguration. Luke, this is the account of the transfiguration. But the verse right prior to that, Jesus makes this statement. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see, and that word means to perceive by sight, the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God in power? I mean, what, who is this king? And, and how does it change our life? I mean, what are we talking about here? Can you give us a glimpse of that? Well, sure. Peter now is reflecting on that event that happened in the mountain. And he says this, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power, Deuteronomy, and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What, the second coming of Christ? No, that hasn't happened yet. He's talking about this first time when Jesus revealed himself in all his glory, the parousa, the present, presence, a coming, an arrival of Christ when he came in his kingdom. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we receive, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when? When a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is the word Peter uses. I understand Peter's love of God and love of Christ by just the terminology he uses. This is what this word means. Strong, mighty, 
great, resplendent, magnanimous, magnificent, splendid. I'm running out of superlatives here. We just look at excellent. Oh, that means he's the best. No, he's resplendent. He's magnanimous. I I can't even put into words how incredible God is. And we were there when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When did you hear that, Peter? We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I think, my personal opinion, I think that this kingdom of God that he talked about before the transfiguration, some of you here, not all of you, in a couple days, we're gonna, I'm going to ask a few of you, I'm not going to give you the details now, to go up on the mountain to pray, and there, there the, the veil of my humanity will be peeled back, and there you're going to get a glimpse of the power and the glory and the majesty of what it is like in the kingdom of God when I come, but what it's, it's like a taste and a foreshadowing of what you could be like now. Now I'm going to close with this. I'm just going to read to you the account of the transfiguration from all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all put together. So we don't miss anything by reading just one author's version. Jesus said that when you want to see the kingdom with power, and he gave them this example. Now it came to pass after six days... After these sayings, what sayings are those? Well, the verses that follow right before this, surely I say to you that some of here won't taste death until you experience what you're about to experience right now. And he attached to that every single time, kingdom of God. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, didn't take them all, just a couple of them, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, alone. The other disciples are down at the bottom to pray. And as he prayed, doesn't say they were praying, but as he prayed, he was transfigured before them. I want you to, to feel the frustration that these gospel writers are having trying to describe the resplendent, magnanimous, overwhelming, great, and majestic vision they saw of Christ. I, I, don't, I don't even have words to, to put it in place. I mean, what, what must it have been like? Well, the appearance of his face was, was altered, like the sun. It was altered. It was like the sun, and his clothes became shining. No, no, not only shining, but they glistened. They were exceedingly white, like snow. No, it was whiter than snow. It was like light. How can clothes be that light? I don't know. No launderer, no matter how skilled they are, could ever whiten them that white. Wow, these guys can't even describe what's happening. And behold, if that wasn't frightening enough, Moses and Elijah appeared to them. And they were talking with Jesus. I'm I'm sitting here and Jesus is transfigured. And I I can't even describe it. It's like light, like this glory radiating from him. And I look and there's two figures there. And I recognize them as Moses and Elijah. And they're having this conversation with Jesus who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. That's a strange word. So I looked that one up. What does that mean? It means his departure, his exodus. It's the act of coming and going out of a place, an unloosening or an exit or departure from life. It means his death. 
But the word he chose, it didn't say it spoke of his death. It spoke of his leaving. It spoke of his unloosening, maybe throwing this humanity behind and embracing God for who it is. It, it gave me a different picture of G, how Jesus viewed his death, that he was about to accomplish, to satisfy, to impart richly at Jerusalem. Oh, so he wasn't afraid. He was knowing, he was freely going, I'm about to be unloosed and redeem mankind from their sin, and I'm going to complete that act and satisfy that mandate in Jerusalem. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Seems like these guys are always sleeping. And I kind of think maybe sometimes the stress is so great that they don't even, they don't even know what they're doing, and, and they're just closing their eyes. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him, as the two men are moving away, and they've had their conversation, Peter said to Jesus, uh, uh, excuse me, Lord, uh, Master, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. There's so many interpretations about what this means. We have a tendency of dissing on Peter, like what a stupid thing to say, but Peter may have been building tabernacles. That's why that word is used, talking about worship and stuff of that nature, and that's not the point of what I want to show you right now. But Luke says that he didn't know what he said, and Mark, who was his friend, said, no, he didn't know what he was saying because he didn't know what to say. Nobody knew what to say because they were greatly afraid. And while Peter was still speaking, it's a lot in this. So he's having in front of him this scene of majestic glory taking place. And Peter wants to just, uh, 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 Lord, if you don't mind, I don't really like the silence. I don't know what to do. So if you don't mind, I have a question. Can I? While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud came and overshadowed them. This Shekinah glory of the Lord like was on top of Mount Sinai. All of a sudden, Peter stopped, and he looks, and this great cloud is coming, and it's overshadowing them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. As the cloud came down upon them, maybe they walked to the cloud, and suddenly, in the middle of that cloud, seeing nothing, there came a voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This part Peter left out in his gospel. Hear him shot up, Hear him. Hear what he has to say. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. When the voice had ceased, Jesus touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, meaning they were down covering their faces, and looked around, they saw no one but Jesus only with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Um, I don't get that. How can the Son of Man rise? How could you be killed when something like that happens? I still have a perverted Jewish view of the kingdom. I will in Acts chapter 1. Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? No. No, that day is in the future. So they kept this word to themselves and told no one in those days, they did later, of any of these things they had seen while questioning what rising of the dead meant. I don't even know what that means. So let me close with this. Now, what happened there? 
But why did they see this? Why did Jesus allow them to see this? It didn't, uh, it didn't change their view. They saw Christ as king and Lord that can do anything. When they came down from the mountain, if you remember, it's one of the only times in Scripture you can see Jesus getting frustrated. They came down from the mountain. There's a bunch of people gathered around. The disciples are there. There's this man who has a son that has these fits, like a demonic uh, attack, throws him into the fire, tries to drown him. And uh, I took him to your disciples, and your disciples could not cast him out. Do you remember what Jesus said? Oh, how long will I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So he brings the boy to him. And how long has he been like this? For a long time since he was young. Cast out the demon. The boy acted like he was dead. Then all of a sudden he raised up. Everything was wonderful. The disciples then came up to Jesus and says, why could we not cast him out? Because you didn't have any faith. Because you didn't have faith. And this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. And we focused on the prayer and fasting part and miss the part that what was happening on the mountain was the kingdom of God. What was happening on the base of the mountain was the kingdom of man, trying to do godly things without godly power, not having the faith that Jesus has imparted to all of us to be able to manifest his kingdom like they did in Acts chapter 1. Because it appears when they came down this sigh, how long will I put up with you? Bring the boy to me that Jesus expected them to live like they were in the kingdom. I'm going to stop here, and you'll get the rest of this later on this week. But I am telling you that what we see of Christ right now is nothing compared to what he's truly like. But if the best of us can see like in a mirror dimly living in this kingdom, I would love to be able to experience all there is of this kingdom, knowing that what's going to be coming is even better, wouldn't you? They talk about having a little heaven while on earth. Okay, we can taste, I guess, maybe what heaven is like, this unbroken fellowship with the Lord, these mountaintop experiences we have with him, this I'm so close to him. I just, it's just, just amazing how, how that happens. And but knowing that when we're with him in unbroken fellowship, it'll be infinitely better than that. And all it takes is a surrender, a recognition that his kingdom comes when we acknowledge and submit to his rule and reign. He doesn't force us to do that, but we do that out of our love by keeping his commandments. And when you have a desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. The Bible says that. But we should never quake under that. We should actually grow stronger. Because that's what his kingdom is all about. Amen? We will talk more about this next week and during the week. But um, I hope you'll just ponder these words. And let's see what God does in our life. Let me pray.